You're listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally. Hello, this is Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. We recently had the good fortune of moderating BMO Financial Group's official COVID-19, the Biden presidency, and what lies ahead conference call with Dr. John White, Chief Medical Officer of WebMD, Dr. Howard Ovens, an emergency physician and Chief Medical Strategy Officer of Sinai Health in Toronto, and subject matter experts from BMO Capital Markets, including Deputy Chief Economist Michael Gregory and Head of Fixed Income and Commodity and Currency Strategy, Margaret Karens, as long as ourselves providing some investment strategy comments. The following podcast is a synopsis of the doctor's comments individually, a quick back and forth amongst the two doctors when they actually pose each other a question, followed by a tradition that we have on these calls, ending the call with something positive. So each of the subject matter experts started off by Margaret Karens, followed by Michael Gregory at BMO Capital Markets, lended their positive response to what's happening right now in terms of their own fields of work, in terms of fixed income and economics, respectively. Followed by the doctors provided a positive end to the call in terms of what they're seeing with respect to COVID-19 coronavirus and the work that they've seen and been doing over the last several months. Here's Dr. John White to kick us off in terms of his commentary. Well, thank you, Brian, and good morning, everyone. I'm going to talk primarily about what's happening in the United States, and my colleague, Dr. Ovens, is going to talk about what's happening in Canada. So where are we today, and where are we likely going? So keep this in mind. We have about 25 million cases in the United States. Most experts believe that number is probably closer to 50 million, 70 million people that actually have had COVID, but never went to get a test, never went to see the doctor. So we don't know for sure. We know it's an underestimate, but at least 25 million cases and the number of deaths is around 420,000. The majority of those have occurred in the last few months. If you think about This has been a year since we first heard about it. But some encouraging news is that the rates of hospitalizations, the rate of death, the rate of new cases is decreasing. And we think that's most likely because we have got beyond the Christmas and holiday surge that we were seeing all around the country. The key will be that we'll want to look at is where does it plateau? We don't want it to plateau at a high number of daily cases and hospitalizations. So we're going to need to wait a few more weeks to see where we're going to plateau, and and that'll have a big play in our return to normal. The big issue right now that's on everyone's minds are these variants. And, And just to remind you what a variant is, it's really this mutated strain. And all viruses mutate. The concern is, does this variant, and the the one we're often talking about is called B117, is it more transmissible? 
And there's some early data that suggests it may be more deadly. And that's the reason why we really have to step up our vaccination plan. We've had great development of vaccines, but where we've been lagging is the distribution. And we do see through some research that's going on right now in testing that the current vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer's, do protect against this variant. Because what's happening is the antibodies that are developed against the spike protein, it's against many aspects of the spike protein. So not just one or two. So if it mutates, that doesn't mean that the vaccine's not going to be effective. Now, Moderna did announce today the vaccine seems to be less effective, but still protective against the South African variant. And they are developing a booster in case we need it. So this is what everyone really is talking about around the world, this variant and how it's going to impact vaccination. The preliminary good news is that the vaccines do protect against these different variants. Even if it's less antibody protection, it's still enough to provide protection. But that's something that we're going to need to watch. So where are we with vaccines in the United States? So 41 million vaccines have been distributed across the United States, 41 million, but only 22 million have been given. Think about this in another way, about 5.6% of the population has been given one shot, 5.6%. Less than 1% have gotten two shots. I'm getting my second shot tomorrow of Moderna, so remember, we don't get full protection until about a week after the second dose. So we still have a way to go. And, and I know people are listening from around the country. So in case you want to compare, there's a great uh, comparator chart on the CDC's website. I'll tell you who has the highest vaccination of their population, almost 10%. You might be surprised. It's Alaska, it's West Virginia, and it's New Mexico. And those that are doing, that, or I should say, that have the lowest vaccination of their residents is Missouri and Idaho, with only 2% of their population vaccinated. So we have a way to go if we want to get that 70 to 80% herd immunity, which really lets us get to that new normal. So, you know, it's always great in, in economics and finance and in medicine, too. It's all about numbers. So if you keep in mind that for approximately adults 16 years of age and older, so remember, that's uh, the Pfizer vaccine, 16 and above, and Moderna, it's 18 and above. That's about 230 million people. Right now, we only have vaccines that are two shots. So that's 460 million doses that we need to do here in the United States. So even if you think it's 75% of that population, we're still going to need about 345 million shots. So with that, if we're averaging about 1.1 million a day, that's not going to be enough. Um, and I know the, the president has a goal of 100 million 
in 100 days, that's a million a day. We're, we're slightly above that right now. And there's actually been a couple of days where it's about 2 million and even 3 million doses. But that could be a year. So we really need to develop a strategy to rev it up. We really need, honestly, to be getting it about 2 million a day if we want to accomplish this by summer. Now, the other good news is that Johnson & Johnson Janssen will likely submit their EUA request, their emergency use authorization, in a couple of weeks in February. And it's, you know, everyone's saying that's one shot. They're also testing two shots, just so you know. And we don't have the data yet. There is an adenovirus similar to AstraZeneca. And the AstraZeneca vaccine, there's some questions about some of their data, but it's about 70% effective. So if we have one shot, we'll have to see what J&J is. If that's 70% and two shots are, are 94%, is one shot good enough? It doesn't require the super cold temperatures. So we're going to have to see where we are in terms of the data. Uh, you know, we don't go by press releases. We don't go by pre-pubs. We really are going to need to see the data on that. But remember, even with that, if it's one shot, we're still talking an enormous number of vaccinations that we need to be getting done. And, and the issue has been somewhat supply, but it's also been distribution. And the president has announced that he is going to have FEMA set up sites, the National Guard set up sites. And I'm going to tell you, I think that's a good strategy. They're good at logistics. They're good at planning. And the health system isn't always that good at that. And we're asking the health system and public health departments to take on this responsibility. They're trying the best that they can, but they don't always have the resources. So it really is time to call in. National Guard and FEMA, and the president has announced that. In terms of supply, that's been in the news about some reduced um, supply, some issues. So Pfizer and Moderna combined have announced that there'll be 200 million additional doses by the end of March. 200 million. Another 200 million at the end of June. I'm going to be honest, those are best case scenarios. As you know, there can always be issues in the supply chain. And then Johnson & Johnson is currently working on it now. They'll have 100 million by April. So that is really pretty good in terms of uh, volume of vaccine. Again, the issue is going to be how do we get it into people's arms. And different states have different policies. There's been lack of a central process. I think we're going to see that change in the next few weeks. And many People will ask me, how do you know when it's your turn? What I've been telling people, you, you want to look at your, your pharmacy loyalty programs. Often CVS and Walmart and Walgreens all have those, so you might want to check those out. There's actually a website called vaccinefinder.org. It's not operational yet for COVID, so that's something that you'll want to sign up for as well eventually. Don't expect people to find you when it's your turn. And then you want to sign up at your public health department sites as well to find out information there. The other point I want to remind folks is that vaccination really is a way to help crush the pandemic, but it's not just vaccination. It's still going to be improved testing, and we're seeing that a lot more over-the-counter testing, a lot of at-home testing. That has enormous value for continuing to see progress in therapeutics, especially the role of monoclonal antibodies something that has been underutilized, especially early on in the disease process. So we do have a lot of encouraging news when we talk about the supply of vaccine, 
another 200 million at the end of March, another 200 million at the end of June, another 100 million of J&J in April, we're up to more than 1.1 million. You know, I do think in some ways there could be an approach, don't set goals too high in the new administration. So 100 million over 100 days, that has to be the base. That has to be the floor. Our goal should be much higher than that. And I do think we'll get there, especially with this additional resources of FEMA and the National Guard here in the United States. So there's some promising trends that we're seeing, even in terms as we think about decrease the rate in number of cases and hospitalization. So I'm optimistic about where things are going. I'm optimistic that we're gonna see protection against the variant. And, and the good news is we're continuing to collect this data and I think we really are focused on developing a plan in the next few months to, to address this. And with that, I'm going to turn it back to Brian. Thank you so much, Dr. White, as usual. Now it's on to Dr. Howard Ovens. Uh, Dr. Ovens is an emergency physician and chief medical strategy officer of Sinai Health at the University of Toronto, or as we like to say, U of T. Uh, he holds uh, the rank of full professor at the Department of Family and Community Medicine and is a senior fellow in the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation. He is the Ontario expert lead for emergency medicine, and in that capacity chairs the Emergency Services Advisory Committee, and as part of the pandemic response, sits on the Ontario Health R5 response table representing emergency medicine. Obviously, Dr. Evans is here to bring us up to date what's going on with Canada, and we'd love to hear what you have to say, and on to you, Dr. Evans. Well, uh, thank you so much for the kind introduction, Brian, and for your comments, John, and thanks to BMO for the opportunity to be with you here today. And it is uh, an interesting day for us to be talking because uh, January 25th, uh, 2020, was the day that we confirmed our first uh, case of uh, what would eventually be called COVID-19 here in uh, Toronto, uh, the first case in Ontario in a returned uh, traveler from Wuhan. And uh, we really didn't know uh, what we were in for at that point. Um, just uh, to um, uh, compare how the last year has gone in Canada with some of the uh, numbers that John shared for the United States, uh, we've had, we're about one-tenth the population of uh, the US and we've had uh, 750,000 cases so far total, uh, about 19,000 deaths. So uh, we, we have done a little better than the United States on an international comparison. Uh, like Canada, we are a sort of middling uh, performance, uh, much worse than the best performers like Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan, but much better than uh, the UK, some parts of Europe and uh, the US and of course Brazil and Russia have suffered a lot as well. Um, at this stage, we um, are at a place that I would describe as frustrating for me and many of my colleagues because <clears throat> the uh, international experience um, has been that uh, uh, you can, with uh, severe uh, public health restrictions, uh, uh, prevent uh, big waves of uh, COVID-19, and uh, that that does not have to hurt the economy. Uh, the WHO just uh, commented on that last week, 
And yet we seem to keep having to learn the same lesson over and over again in Canada that um, you can't really take a balanced approach. No jurisdiction has successfully treaded water at a sort of moderate level of transmission. Uh, either you get it knocked down really low or eventually it rises to the point where um, the, the government finally surrenders and brings in a lockdown. And so we've had four provinces in Canada, our maritime provinces, that have done as well as almost uh, any country internationally. Uh, they've kept their travel restrictions in place. And economically, uh, they've done very well uh, as a result also. Whereas the other six more populous provinces uh, had large second waves. And uh, the uh, those curves, again, are starting to uh, go down now because after the Christmas uh, social season and when most governments finally brought in lockdowns, we're now starting to see the impact of that. Um, this is all, again, very frustrating because not only do we know how to prevent transmission of COVID at this stage, but uh, with that knowledge and with the knowledge that the vaccines are being rolled out, Everyone who's dying or getting seriously ill right now is uh, a really a preventable tragedy. And uh, I, I like to use the metaphor that it's like being the last soldiers killed before an armistice. It, it really seems very wasteful. Um, so the other part of this is that we are talking a lot about vaccines in Canada. Um, we're arguing about them, who's getting in line first, second, third, can we go faster? We've had um, about 1.1 million vaccination doses distributed to the provinces so far. We've administered uh, just over 800,000 of those, about 75%. Um, but to some extent, I would say that um, with the exception of uh, vaccinating our frail elderly in long-term care, where this could be a big lifesaver, um, it is a bit of a distraction because we can't vaccinate our way out of this second wave. Um, the supply of vaccine, the time it takes to distribute it, the time it takes for the host to have a, a positive antibody response that's protective, all suggest that we can't wait for uh, the uh, community or herd immunity to get us out of this second wave. <clears throat> we really need to keep our lockdowns in place until we uh, have received, uh, gotten to a, an acceptable level of transmission. And of course, as John mentioned, we're all facing a new challenge with the new variants. Uh, up till now, we've been only doing about 5% uh, of our positive samples. Have we been running a full genomic sequence in Canada? And uh, that takes two to three weeks to produce results. And so we know that the variants are here, especially the UK variant, and the UK variant is responsible for a very severe outbreak in a long-term care facility in a smaller city north of Toronto Barrie. Um, but that uh, approach will not be sufficient for surveillance for us to try and uh, limit the spread of the new variants. To do that, uh, we need a new approach, and there is a, an opportunity to leverage some new technology developed here at uh, Sinai Health's uh, Research Institute, the uh, Lunenfeld Tenenbaum Research Institute, 
where they have developed uh, under the direction of one of our scientists, Jeff Rana, a bulk, uh, a very rapid analyzer that can do genomic sequencing of what's called slices of the, um, of the full genome of, and identify mutations and variants very, very quickly. But that will be useless unless we can take that information just like we need to from all of our testing and turn it nimbly and quickly into contact tracing and effective isolation. Um, there is a building uh, consensus uh, among the expert community that's starting to have an impact on politicians here on whether we should uh, bulk up as well our travel restrictions because of the new variants, both domestically and internationally, with uh, talk of uh, really defining uh, essential travel more carefully, preventing uh, non-essential travel, and putting greater restrictions on returning travelers, not just to produce a negative test, but perhaps to have a supervised uh, period of quarantine on their return. So if I were to summarize that, I'd say the major question facing us in Canada today is, do we have the social consensus and the political courage needed to stay the course on our public health restrictions until we can get the uh, numbers of new cases down low like we did last spring and summer, well below 100 new cases a day. If we don't, if we give up too soon, thinking that the vaccine will save us or that we can once again try to tread water, um, then what will happen, I'm afraid, is between COVID fatigue in the public and the presence of the new variants is that we will have a very quick and severe third wave. I'm hoping that, uh, that we can avoid that clearly by doing the right thing and maintaining our masking, our social distancing, and our other public health restrictions while simultaneously beefing up our genomic surveillance and, uh, and our vaccine rollout. So that's a very quick tour of uh, where I th see things right now. Uh, Canada has been slow to get its vaccine supply, but there is a lot of it under contract that will come in the second and third quarter of 2020. I'm guardedly optimistic that we'll get it uh, rolled out quickly and that we'll be in a very different place come this fall. Uh, but we do have a lot of challenges still ahead of us. And I think I'll, I'll leave it there and, of course, happy to take any questions. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Evans. We now have the very unique opportunity for the two doctors to interact uh, with each other as Dr. White's going to kick it off and ask one question to Dr. Evans, and then we're going to ask Dr. Evans to ask one question to Dr. White. So, Dr. White, you have the floor. Yeah. I did want to ask Dr. Evans, and in and, and full disclosure, he and I talked this weekend as well, but I, I wanted to understand, you know, early on, particularly, Canada did much better in terms of the number of cases per population. And do you think it's, it's a cultural issue in terms of folks may be more receptive to public health messaging by government officials and there was more consistent messaging? Or, you know, some people have argued it, it really was about testing and more wide-scale testing. We're, we're kind of forgetting to talk about testing nowadays, but that's also another strategy. So. What was it? Was it testing? Was it that people were, were doing the mask and the physical distancing? 
much sooner and much more frequently in, in terms of reducing the number of cases compared to the United States? So we have a number of, thanks John, we do have a number of um, inherited advantages in Canada uh, in dealing with a pandemic like this one compared to the U.S. Uh, the public health system, uh, publicly funded health care that we have in Canada is a help. It's uh, not a problem for people to seek care. Um, it is, uh, we're a, a, a little bit less more, uh, less densely populated country, which is an advantage with this, uh, with this virus. Uh, we are, our motto is uh, peace, order, and good government, which, uh, you know, um, Canadians are generally, um, more uh, likely to go along with consensus and uh, early on we had a very strong social consensus to follow public health guidelines um, and we did get our testing again because of our publicly funded system I think we were able to get our testing act uh, together early uh, much uh, better than the US was able to you had some real hiccups um, with the CDC in your early testing and of course, we had different political leadership. Um, the uh, pandemic was not politicized in Canada, at least not early on. Um, and we had very good consensus across uh, opposition as well as uh, leadership parties, uh, uh, provincial parties that were led by different parties than our, than our federal government. So all that helped us initially. Um, we have seen a little bit of... Uh, American uh, media and political influence uh, uh, reflected here in Canada. We have uh, uh, much stronger uh, COVID denial um, uh, 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 process going on today. Uh, more uh, people against masking, more people against lockdowns, uh, putting a lot of political pressure uh, on our leaders to um, try the so-called balanced approach uh, which has failed over and over again. Um, but I think those were the major advantages we had early on. And actually, that's going to lead me to ask the question I want to ask of you, um, which is, uh, given the impact leadership can have uh, and the dramatic change in attitude we've seen this week between the uh, former Trump administration and the new Biden administration, on the way they're going to approach the pandemic, how important a factor is it in the U.S. Uh, with the way uh, public health restrictions are managed uh, both municipally and in, at the state level? How much difference do you think the Biden administration can have in getting your second wave under control? Yeah, and, and I already do think that the wave is getting under better control right now. The issue is, as I mentioned, where does it plateau? I think public health messaging is critical, and that's been one of the challenges. So do people need to wear masks? You know, is six feet far enough? We haven't had that consistent messaging from public health experts. We don't necessarily need politicians of whatever party giving people advice that relates to science. So I think we're starting to see a much more consistent message around what we need to do to return to normal or return to the next normal. So I do think it makes a big difference and we're seeing that 
over time. I also think we'll have much more of a centralized process going forward in terms of more specific recommendations to state and counties, more coordination by the federal government, and that's going to have an impact where we are. Thank you. And I did not know that about the motto of Canada. <laughs> so I learned uh, a bit today, so thank you. And with that, I think we'll turn it back to Brian. Well, in the last few minutes we have remaining, we have uh, a very strong uh, uh, thing that we do all the time on these calls. And we want to end with a positive note. And so we're going to ask each one uh, of our panelists. We're going to start with Margaret, then Michael, then Dr. Ovens, and then close out with Dr. White in terms of our tradition to close with a positive thing. So, Margaret, can you please lead us off in terms of the most positive thing that you can see that's going on in your markets and then hand it off to Michael. Sure, thank you, Brian. I think the most positive thing is that the Fed and the fiscal government will stand ready to support the markets if need be, and that this is giving a sense of calm to the markets. The Fed portfolio has increased by you know, $3 trillion, putting an enormous wall of cash into the financial markets. And when it comes time for them to begin to to step back, which will not be um, today's story or next year's story most likely, um, I think they're going to have to do it very delicately just because of the um, amount that they have put into the market. So yeah, positive note is that the Fed and the fiscal government will do what it takes to keep our markets functioning and there will be plenty of issuance for people to buy. Well, I, I think probably the most positive thing, and I'll dovetail a bit with Margaret, is that on both sides of the border, uh, the, the, the fiscal authorities, the monetary authorities are standing ready to do what is ever what is needed to make sure that the economy's uh, little dip we're having right now is minimized, and we do have that uh, a strong foundation for for a robust recovery when the restrictions and the lockdowns start being lifted. And again, I I I I, I think that. Uh, you know, the, the fact that we're like even in Washington now, we've got a little bit more better leadership and, and trying to make sure we're just following the basic, you know, uh, protocols uh, uh, in terms of mask wearing and distancing and things like that. I, I think it can further add to this trying to get these case rates under control when we can then, you know, th that first criteria we need to get those uh, restrictions started being lifted. And, and the, the, you know, and households, broadly speaking, are, are in good shape. That to, to help contribute to that recovery, unleashing a bit of pent up demand. So, so again, I don't think this downturn is be as bad as it was a year ago, and I do think that uh, you know we will get a pretty decent uh, economy by this summer. Well, uh, I'm very optimistic um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, science has uh, really. Uh, been uh, one of the consistent features of this pandemic response, really uh, fantastic developments in testing, genomic sequencing, vaccination, uh, therapeutics. And uh, I'm excited at this point because I still think, although science has answered the call, the socio-political response has been spottier. And I think the U.S. rejoining the World Health Organization, 
joining the COVAX group to try and uh, support third world countries, developing countries who need help getting their vaccination. I think those are very important developments that are going to help us uh, get all this back under control and help uh, bring us out of this pandemic. You know, Brian, this is titled the Biden presidency. And, and what I'm optimistic about is we're hearing from the president talk about that there is no more important problem than addressing the COVID pandemic. And you can see that there is a singular laser focus on how to address this from a public health strategy, from a financial strategy. You hear the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, says addressing COVID is the number one problem for him. That's his commitment. So I think we're seeing this all across the federal government in a way that we have never seen. And I think that's going to go a long way in addressing this from a scientific perspective or from a financial perspective and a public health perspective. And, and that's really what we need because we're not safe until we're all safe and everything else can't return to normal until we really adequately address the pandemic. And that's what I think we're doing. So that's what I'm very optimistic about. As you heard, there's a lot of good things to revel about and we think applaud with respect to what's going on in terms of COVID-19 coronavirus and the pandemic. Clearly, there's still a lot of work to do and Drs. White and Ovens gave us a great background with respect to what's happened and what we can look forward to going forward. So what does this mean for the stock market with respect to investment strategy? We continue to believe that the U.S. stock market is in the midst of a 20-year bull market uh, with the 10-year, next 10 years, I'm sorry, really kick-started with the bottom in stocks in March and now have transitioned into, again, a full-blown bull market. Why are stocks going up? Well, we continue to believe that U.S. stocks and Canadian stocks, for that matter, are the best assets in the world, and that's why the money is supporting with respect to the stock prices. We continue to like sectors akin to financials, consumer discretionary, industrials, and materials in both markets, by the way. With respect to the U.S. market and the questions in terms of technology, we remind investors that if you combine the technology sector and the communication service sector, they're 40% of the proper U.S. index known as the S&P 500. That being said, we believe investors should maintain positions, not actively grow positions. But when the market spikes higher, trim back those positions. And when the market sells off, maybe add a little bit more to your favorite technology positions. All the content provided in the conference call is available at bmocm.com or please reach out to your relationship manager. Please stay well and we look forward to hearing from you and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.